There are times when repetition can be a good thing and other times when it's not. Let me give you an example of both. When I was little and my parents would tell my brother and me to do something, they wanted us to do it the first time they told us to do it. So they would often tag on to that, do not make me repeat myself. You ever hear that? Heard that a few times. We knew that, after hearing that, that if they had to tell us something twice, we would be in trouble, because that meant we weren't minding them. Leslie and I, at times, will say to our girls, the first time we say it, what, Les? You obey it, right? Said that a lot, haven't we? Yeah. So at times, repetition is, is not a good thing, but other times, it is. When I was in seminary, they would often... Uh, teach us in our, our preaching and teaching classes that repetition is the key to learning. Repetition is the key to learning. Repetition is the key to learning. What's the key to learning? Repetition, right? And, and they would tell us that when you're, when you're preaching and you've got your main points, you want to make sure that you say those things more than a few times so that your hearer will, will get it. And God knows that about us. He's created us in this way, which is why he is very repetitive in his word. God's word is very repetitive, especially in the book of Hebrews. If you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 24 this morning. We're going to finish out Hebrews 12 next Sunday. It's a great passage of scripture which I'm sure I've been repetitive in saying right I've said that quite a bit in this study because Hebrews is an incredible book lots of great passages in this great book now to really understand this passage in verses 19 through 29 of Hebrews 12 it is important to understand how it is structured and to understand how it is structured it helps to go back to the very beginning of the book because the author of Hebrews does something unique in the passage we're going to look at this week and next week. He structures this passage the way he structures the entire book. So get this, if you understand the structure of the book of Hebrews, you'll understand the structure of this passage. And if you understand the structure of this passage and the structure of the book, you'll also understand the main point of the book of Hebrews. You with me? So, very important. Lots of things to look at and go over this week and, and next week. As we've said already, the writer of Hebrews is very repetitive in this book. He repeats himself again and again. We are the same truths chapter after chapter, verse after verse. Why? Why does God repeat himself in his word? Is it by accident? Did he forget he said something and say it again? Did he just say it to, to hear himself say it? Are we just to skip over things that we've already heard? Is that what God wants us to do? When we encounter repetition in his word, some have a tendency to say, you know what, I know that. I've, I've already seen that. I got that. I understand that. Don't need to be told that again and skim it and move on. Is that what God wants? 
When God repeats himself more than a few times in his word, those are the times we really need to perk up and listen and ask ourselves, what is God telling me that I need to hear? What is he telling me that I am not getting? Well, in Hebrews, God is telling his Jewish Christian audience that Jesus is better. Why? Because they weren't getting it. Because they, they were questioning whether or not he was and were being lured away by lesser inferior beliefs and practices. That's why the author begins by showing Jesus is, is greater. He gets right into it. He's greater than prophets. He's God's supreme form of revelation. He's greater than angels, greater than Moses, greater than Joshua. He, he leads God's people to a greater rest. He provides a greater salvation. He is a greater substitute and sacrifice who lived a greater life than you and me could ever live. He's accomplished a greater work in his life and death and in his resurrection. That's what the author of Hebrews spends the first few chapters getting across. And he really focuses in, in the heart of the book, on the priesthood of Jesus and how Jesus is a true and better priest. We said that point is the main point in the book. The heart of Hebrews is the superiority of the priesthood of Jesus. The writer of Hebrews goes out of his way to show that Jesus comes from a greater priestly order than the order of Aaron, the household of Levitical priests. Jesus is from the order of Melchizedek. And to know about him, go back, listen to those sermons on Melchizedek, all right? We've, we've covered that. He precedes the priest of Aaron, the tribe of Levi, the first father Abraham. He is eternal. He is like Melchizedek, both king and priest. As priest, he comes to deal with sin, to make a way to God. And as king, he accomplishes this work by conquering sin and death and destroying the works of the devil and establishing God's kingdom, rescuing his people from their sinful state, from the clutches of the enemy, from death and judgment. He is the king priest from the house of David, from the tribe of kings the tribe of Judah. Through his accomplished work at Calvary, Christ introduces a better covenant, ushers in a better kingdom. The old covenant was temporary, imperfect, incomplete. It was earthy and transient and de dependent upon flawed works of God's faithful. And while the old system and sacrifice in the tabernacle and later on in the temple showed people their sin and the consequences of sin and their need of salvation, it could not provide access to God, could not ultimately save anyone. The old covenant, the ancient Mosaic system, simply pointed out the problem and pointed to the need for a solution, but it could not provide it, okay? That's the point of the author of Hebrews that he makes 
from the end of chapter 4 through the middle of chapter 10. So he spends nine and a half chapters laying the theological foundation for the supremacy of Jesus. And along the way, he also gives words of warning and words of great assurance to provide God's people with the motivation that they need to live for him. God wants his followers to faithfully follow hard after him. That's, that's why this writer is writing. That's what God is, is doing through this author here. That's his intent in Hebrews. Midway through chapter 10 comes the great transition in the book. The author of Hebrews finally brings the application, the great therefore. He says, therefore, in light of who Christ is, in light of the fact that he is supreme over everyone and everything, in light of these severe warnings that I have given you and the wonderful assurance that I have given you because of your faith alone in Christ alone, therefore, verse 22 of Hebrews 10, look at it. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. He is calling for them in light of who Christ is, in light of what he's done, to faithfully draw near to him, to obey him, to stir up other believers, to respond accordingly. He says, verse 32, Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured hard struggle with sufferings. He says, remember when you had a correct view of the Lord Jesus Christ. You heeded his warnings. You, you embraced the assurance that you have in Jesus. You followed faithfully regardless of the circumstances. And remember, their circumstances got pretty tough, right? They were being persecuted, but we're told they accepted it with joy. Why? Because they had a better possession and an abiding one. He says, remember those days and continue to live faithfully. Don't drift, but draw near and continue to look to Jesus, trusting in him, following faithfully after him no matter what. He says in verse 39, we as believers are not like those who shrink back, but like those who have faith and persevere. I love that verse, don't you? And then he explains through many wonderful examples in Hebrews 11 what it looks like to live by faith and persevere. And then in Hebrews 12, the author of Hebrews calls for his readers to run with endurance the race that God has set before us, putting aside every weight and sin that hinders us from running this race well. So, in summary, what the writer of Hebrews has done is he's made a strong case for Christ's supremacy in all things, especially when it comes to being our priest and accomplishing salvation for us and bringing us to God. And then the writer of Hebrews gives warning passages and great passages on assurance to encourage continued faithfulness 
and perseverance, encouraging his Jewish Christian audience to not drift, but draw near to Christ and trust in him and follow after him in faith till the end. That's the point. That's the point of the book. You with me? And in our passage for today and next week, we are going to see the author of Hebrews do the exact same thing in this passage that he does throughout the book. He's going to make a case for Christ's supremacy, and he is going to give assurance and issue warnings to his audience as motivation for them to draw near to Christ in faith and follow hard after him. That all happens in this passage. This morning, we're just going to focus in on the supremacy of Christ as priest. This is going to sound familiar to some of you who have been tracking with us, but again, don't skip over these truths. Consider them, all right? Notice the case made for Christ's supremacy. In verses 18 through 24, the writer is returning to his conversation from earlier in the book about how and why Christ is a true and better priest who, through his accomplished work at Calvary, has accomplished a true and better work than the priest and kings of old. He has established a true and better covenant than the covenant God made with Moses. I want you to notice in this passage a series of contrasts that the author makes when explaining why the new covenant of Jesus is better than the old covenant of Moses. The first contrast we've looked at before a number of times, again, it's repetitive, we learn this, look at it. The covenant of Moses was earthly and temporal. The covenant of Jesus is heavenly and eternal. Look at verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched. Now look at verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. In this text, the author of Hebrews mentions two mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. One represents the old earthly, temporal, mosaic covenant. Which one do you think that is? Sinai or Zion? Sinai. Good. Yeah. Sinai is the old. Zion represents the new, heavenly, eternal covenant established by Jesus. Sinai was a physical place. And while there is actually a physical Mount Zion, the Mount Zion in view here is a heavenly Place, and the reason we know that is because of what is said in the text. Look at verse 22. Look at it again. You have come to Mount Zion into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. All right? So there's a contrast being made here. One is earthly and temporal. The other heavenly and eternal. The old covenant was earthly and temporal. God's people were physically gathered at Mount Sinai when the old system was put in place. They could later see the tabernacle and later the temple with their own 
eyes. They could see the animals being slain, the, the bloody scene at their place of worship. When they saw this scene, it was a reminder to them of their sin and their separation and their need for salvation. The new covenant is heavenly and unseen. No one on earth has seen the heavenly Zion. They could not see the work of their, their, their great king priest, what Jesus did in the heavenlies when he is presenting himself before the Father as payment for sin the perfect substitute, the ultimate sacrifice for sin. But the, the author of Hebrews lets them know this work is better. The old covenant is temporal. It is no longer in place. No one is to go and offer blood sacrifice at the temple for the sins of God's people any longer. That work has been fulfilled by Christ at Calvary. The old has been replaced by the new. Now, like we said before, that didn't mean that the old covenant was never any good and never needed. The old covenant was not a pointless, worthless, no good covenant. Old, in reference to old covenant, does not mean bad. It means old. In its day, it was the best thing going. But there's a new day, right? Christ has come. We often describe the old covenant and the new covenant in a way that kind of pins the two against one another. We, we set one covenant against the other as if they're competing covenants. That's not the case at all. In fact, it's the opposite. They work together. The old, according to the author of Hebrews, was never meant to be permanent. It always pointed to the need for the new. And when the new arrives, it immediately replaces the old. No more need. For the old, the earthly old covenant was never meant to last. It was meant to be replaced. The author of Hebrews continues to revisit this truth throughout the book. I mean, if you've got a problem with that truth, you've got a problem with Hebrews. Because he says it again and again. The Jews in the first century, though, they had a difficult time seeing beyond the Jewish priesthood. They had a difficult time thinking that it was no longer needed because for their whole lives, they were taught that is the one thing in their lives and in their worship that must remain. They, they, they grew up thinking the old sacrificial system and ceremonial part of their law must never be replaced. It must always remain. They have a difficult time seeing Christ as priest because he was not from the tribe of priests, right? They had a difficult time seeing him as priest Difficult time identifying that there was this new covenant with superior improvements. They had a tough time seeing that, that everything in the ceremonial part of their law was only ritual, only type, only symbol, temporary and transient. That's why the author of Hebrews comes back to this truth and back to this truth. And if you haven't gotten it yet, he's coming back to it again, right? So the first contrast between the old and the new covenant was the old covenant of Moses was earthly and temporal the new covenant of Jesus heavenly and eternal notice the second there was gloom associated with the old covenant of Moses and there is joy associated with the new covenant of Jesus amen look at verses 18 and 19 for you have not come to what may be touched a blazing fire and darkness 
and gloom and a tempest. Verse 19, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Taking them back to the time of Moses when God establishes covenant with them and his people, with him and, and, and with his people at this time. You remember what happened, right? Moses is receiving the law of God on Mount Sinai. The, the rest of God's people were, were gathered, but they were told not to get too close, to keep their distance. They, they were told not to touch the mountainside or they will die, but Moses is allowed to approach. He's got a unique relationship with the living God. He goes up into the mountain where, where God's presence is to commune with God. And we are also told that, that as God's people were, were witnessing what was taking place with Moses on the mountain, we're told they, they heard the, the thunder and they, they saw the flashes of lightning and the, the sound of the trumpet. And when that happened, they were terrified. And they said to Moses, Exodus 20, 19, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. They were terrified. Isn't that interesting? Before Christ, God's people were told by God to keep their distance. And they begged Moses to speak to them instead of God. They're to keep their distance. They don't want God to speak to them. What should that tell you about the relationship between God and his people at this time? There's distance, division, separation. They were away from God. They were gathered, but not to get too close. There were all these barriers in place between man and God in their old existence with him. They were constantly reminded of this all the time. It was a dark and gloomy and scary sort of existence compared to where we are today, believers. In Moses' day, they were to gather but not draw near to God. They did not want God talking directly to them. It scared them half to death. We're even told Moses was scared. Look at Hebrews 12, 21. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Now Moses had a relationship with God that was like no other in the Old Testament. No one closer. He had a very unique, close relationship with the one true and living God, but there was still separation. Moses, though he was an appointed mediator between God and man. He was a flawed go-between. He was in need of Christ's righteous life, which is why he could not enter into God's presence with boldness, but instead with trembling and fear. Now, we should enter into his presence with fear. Don't hear me that, that I'm not saying that. We should, but, but there is a difference through Christ. We can enter in with boldness, without a hesitancy, Right? But why couldn't Moses? Because there's still separation between God and his people and with Moses. 
because of their sin and because it had not yet been dealt with. They did not yet have a perfect mediator who had come worthy to stand before God on their behalf. The perfect substitute had not yet been offered. The perfect sacrifice had not yet been made. Christ had not yet come, right, in the days of Moses. They're reminded of their separation at Sinai. They're reminded of it continually at the tabernacle and later at the temple. Every time they would pass by that bloody scene, it would serve as a reminder to them that sacrifices needed to be offered because their sin had not yet been paid for and dealt with. It was a place where they were reminded of their sin, reminded of their need for salvation and reminded of their separation. Few could enter into the temple, and all but one were not allowed to enter into the most holy place in the temple. Only the high priest could do that one time a year, and he had to get in and get out quickly. And the veil continued to hang in the temple, separating everyone from the earthly throne room and dwelling place of God. It was a reminder that there was this separation still. That's the relationship that God's people had with him under the old covenant. Again, don't think of old as bad. It was fulfilling its purpose that God had intended by showing people their sin and their need for the new, the need for Christ. The old was meant to be dark and gloomy and highlight separation between God and man so that man would see the need for Christ to come and open the way back up for man to enter into through him a right relationship with the living God. That's what we have with the new. Look at verse 22 again. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Where are God's people today? In Moses' day under the old covenant, they were at a distance. Where are they today? Scripture says because of Christ's great person and work, we have been brought near. We live in the presence of holy God through Jesus Christ. We are citizens of his kingdom, residents of his city through Jesus Christ. Our destination is in heavenly Jerusalem in the presence of holy God with his people in the midst of innumerable, that word means what it says, in the midst of an indefinite number of magnificent and glorious angels in festal, in festive and glorious gathering because of Jesus Christ. Wow, right? That's amazing. Just take that verse home and chew on it this afternoon and worship. And notice this, this is great. In this passage, the writer of Hebrews is speaking of a believer's present and future state in the past tense. I love that. He says, you have come. It's a done deal. Our future is bright. Our hope is glorious because it's sealed in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We live in right relationship in the presence of holy God today. We can commune with God and his people today. We're doing it right now. How? Because of Jesus Christ. 
because of him we have constant access to the father through his accomplished work and we have god's presence in us the spirit of god in us because of jesus christ now do you see why he's supreme there's coming a day when god's glory will no longer be concealed from the world and from us it will light up our life and our world like the sun we will live in god's presence with his people with angels in festal gathering forever that day is coming for us the writer of hebrews is saying all that to make this point this is great this is his point he's saying if this is your current position in Jesus, if this is your glorious future in him, why on earth would you want to revert back to that old system where God was at a distance and back to a time when the idea of entering into his presence and communing with him was a terrifying concept? It's a good point, right? Why would you want to leave a covenant marked with joy for a covenant marked with gloom. Here's another comparison the author makes. In the old covenant of Moses, it was impossible to draw near to and be at peace with God. In the new covenant of Jesus, peace and restoration are made possible through his blood. Notice what we're told here when God's people received the law in the old covenant under Moses. Look at verse 20. For they could not endure the order that was given. They couldn't do it. Couldn't keep the law, could they? Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. The old covenant was marked with commands that are impossible for God's people to completely obey and fulfill. It was utterly impossible for God's people to obey him perfectly, to do all that God commanded them to do and not do all the things he commanded them not to do. And get this, this is one of the purposes of the law. I know it may sound strange, but it's true. The law of God, get this, is meant to serve as a mirror and not a ladder. Let me explain what I mean. Many believe the law is like a ladder given to sinners to show them what they need to do and how high they need to climb to be made right with God. That is not the purpose of the law. The law is meant to function as a mirror, showing us who we truly are and how far we fall short and bring us to the end of ourselves so that we'll be humbled and look outside of ourselves to the Savior for rescue. That's the purpose of the law. So the old covenant is marked by impossibility. It was meant to show that drawing near to God, being at peace with him, is not possible on our own, by our own power. And I believe it was effective in showing that. The Jewish people understood they were sinners in need. They were dependent upon the work of a priest to intercede on their behalf. The problem is they never had relief. They remained removed from God. That is, until Christ came. God the Son stepped out of eternity 
and into history, became one of us. He kept the law for us. He obeyed God perfectly for us in our place, laid his life down so that we, through his life, death, and resurrection, could be forgiven of sin and restored to the living God. Christ made the impossible possible. Look at verse 23. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Now, remember, we were told in Moses' day that God's people could not draw near to him, nor did they wish to. They were terrified. They could not endure the orders given. They could not obey God perfectly. They were sinners separated from holy God. Yet notice here in verse 23, there's an assembly gathered. Spirits of the righteous made perfect, enrolled in heaven with God, the judge of all, and Jesus. How is that possible? If God's people are sinners who cannot draw near to God and do not wish to hear from him because they cannot stand in his presence and endure the orders given, then why is there an assembly of believers here that the writer of Hebrews talks about with the Lord in glory? How's that possible? How can condemned sinners be forgiven saints? You know, right? Because of Jesus. Christ did. What was impossible for us to do? He obeyed God perfectly. He laid his perfect life down willingly. He took that punishment for our sins in our place. He suffered. He died. He rose again so that we could be forgiven of sins and restored to God and have life even though we die. Get this. The old covenant says the commands of the law must be met. The new covenant says Christ has fulfilled all righteousness. The Old Covenant says, this is what you owe. The New Covenant says, paid in full. The Old Covenant says, a perfect substitute and sacrifice is needed to atone for sins, past, present, and future forever. The New Covenant says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. With the New Covenant, there is hope. And the reason there is hope is because of the mediator of the new covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ. A moment ago, we looked at verse 21, and we talked about the fact that while Moses had a unique relationship with God, and was God's appointed mediator for his people, he was a flawed go-between. He did not enter into God's presence with boldness, but with fear and trembling. We explained that he himself was in need of another. That one has come, folks. He's come in the person of Jesus. Look at verse 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Here the author of Hebrews at the beginning of this verse is making distinctions again between the old and the new covenant, between Jesus and Moses. He did this earlier in the study. He's doing it again to show once again that the reason the new covenant is superior to the old is because of who the new covenant is associated with. The new covenant is better because it is associated with the personal work of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is better than Moses in every way. He is truly God and truly man, which means he can stand before God on our behalf, believers, and represent us perfectly because he became one of us and he lived the perfect life for us. He can also stand before us and reveal God to us because he is truly God and the work that he accomplished is superior. Notice what the author of Hebrews says at the end of verse 24. He says, the sprinkled blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, let me explain what that means. In Hebrews 11, we read about Abel. And the author of Hebrews tells us that though Abel died, he still speaks. What's his message? Well, in Hebrews 11, it's a story of faith. Abel was faithful. He worshiped God in the right way. His heart was right with him. His worship was acceptable to him. Yet he was murdered by his own brother. While he was faithful, he was killed by his wicked brother Cain. This story takes place on the heels of the fall. We see how messed up our world is as a result of sin in Genesis 4 when you have a brother killing another brother. And the one who was killed was righteous, good, godly man of faith. What happened to Abel is wrong. It's unjust. In Genesis 4.10, God tells Cain, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. This murder scene is unjust. Abel's blood was spilt, and it displays all that is wrong with this world because of sin. But the writer of Hebrews says, the sprinkled blood of Jesus speaks a better word. Get this. Abel's death demanded justice, but there was none. The blood of Christ speaks a better word. It tells us justice has been met. In the old covenant, there was a need for justice to be met. In the new covenant, justice has been met in the person and work of Jesus Christ. How? 2 Corinthians 5.21 At Calvary, God made him, Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in Christ. We deserve death and judgment because of our sin. And God would be completely just in giving us just that. In fact, truth be told, Christ did not come. God would be unjust not to give us that. Instead, however, because he is a good gracious, merciful, loving God. He sent his son to live and die in our place. As we sing and hear on occasion, Jesus was crushed by God for us so that we might not have to be crushed. Our sin was placed on him so that we could receive his righteousness by faith alone in Christ alone. If you're here this morning, you have not forsaken your sin and bowed the knee to King Jesus. Now's the time, today's the day to do just that. He is our only hope. He's the only hope for forgiveness. He's the only hope for restoration to God. His way is better because his way is the only way to forgiveness and to life eternal. Let's pray together.